Bridge Over Troubled Waters was founded in 1970 to serve runaway, homeless, and high-risk youth, most of whom have been abused and neglected throughout their lives. The agency was among the first in the nation to recognize and respond to the growing population of homeless youth, a phenomenon which was to become a national issue. For 46 years, Bridge has been a national model and program innovator for youth development services, reaching youth where they're at, helping them overcome the effects of abuse and neglect, and assisting them to prepare for and attain training, jobs, and economic security. Today, as the premier agency in Boston serving homeless youth, Bridge provides its wraparound continuum of care approach to services for 3,000 youth each year. To read more about their services or to learn how to get involved and support Bridges, go to bridgeotw.org or go to abovethebasement.com and click on our Charitable Causes page.
This is Chuck Clow from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. For over 30 years, Bob Childs has been making violins and is the namesake for the excellent ensemble Childs Play, where every fiddle player in the group plays a Bob Childs violin. You just heard a song from their album, Waiting for the Dawn, called Sam Sam Amadon, Good Morning to Your Nightcap. A little later, you will hear Leave No Millionaire Behind from their more recent album, As the Crow Flies. And after the conversation, you will hear Slips and Falls, Yellow Tinker, The Golden Keyboard, and Mulharis. I hope I pronounced all that correctly. Child's Play is made up of over two dozen world-class musicians who are virtuosos in traditional and contemporary fiddle music. For over 20 years, Child's Play has performed in the United States and Europe in their recent film, Child's Play, a story about fiddlers, fiddles, and a fiddle maker, has been picked up by PBS, so check your local listings for dates in your area. You can also see them in concert on November 17th at the Harwich Center on Cape Cod, on the 18th in New York City at Symphony Space, on the 19th in Portland in Maine and on the 20th in Somerville, Massachusetts at the Somerville Theater in Davis Square. Don't miss it. So here's our conversation with Bob, recorded at Woods Hill Table in Concord, Massachusetts. Bob, thank you for coming. My pleasure. We really appreciate you coming out here. You came out from Cambridge, right? Yeah, drove out from Cambridge. That's where you live? I know that's where your office is, right? Yeah, well, I've had my shop there for over 30 years, but my family lives, we live in Arlington, right next door. Oh, you live in Arlington? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of people I know who live in Arlington. Our band plays in um, Lexington a lot. You play jazz probably, right? No, no. No. Yeah, it's a cute, it's, uh, we play, we're a cover band. Damn it! No, we're not. We're in the we're in the studio right now, cutting an album, an awesome. EP. Yeah, fantastic. Written so, our own music. Uh, your first one. Uh, our first one as a band, as nice. this band. Nice. We've done. We've each done our own huh. previously. Love it. We've had Fiddle join us uh, before. Uh, John Donahoe. I don't know if you know John. I've met him. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's now down in Nashville, but he sat in with us once. And uh, who else? We had well, another we had string guy. player. A guy walked oh. in, but we had another guy from California just walk in off the street, and he's like, "Do you mind if I join you?" Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Do yeah. you remember what he looked David, like? David Pasco, his name is. Oh, oh yeah, no, I don't yeah, know. A real young guy. Yeah, yeah young guy. He was very good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'd love. I'd always love to have a violin in, yeah. or a fiddle player in, in, yeah. in the band. Yeah, it's one of my favorite types of music that Child's Play does. It's it's my comfort music. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You know, yeah. I hear it and I immediately relax. Yeah, especially this time of year in the fall, and it's just very mm-hmm. I don't know Irish ish. Connect to your roots, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is connected to my roots, and at least I think I'm from Ireland. Some, yeah, some, some at some point in my life. Excellent. So you have you you have your your shop, your workshop is yes. in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and you also you also are a, are a doctor. Yes. And where is your office for that? My office and my violin shop are next to each other. Oh, right next to each other. Yes. The mm-hmm. uh, the office is on the second floor, and the shop is on the third floor. Oh, neat. So you just pop in between each one of them to yeah. go work on the violin, yeah. go help people, go work on the violin. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a long story. I mean, basically, I started out as a violin maker, but after basically nine years of training and, and opening up my own shop and working by myself, I really found that I, I didn't enjoy the isolation of just being by myself when I worked, mm-hmm. but I didn't really want to bring in somebody else to work in the shop. So I figured the best solution was to get a part-time job where I worked with people, and then the rest of the time I'd be off uh, working in my shop making instruments. And it turns out it was a great choice because they just complement each other so nicely. 
Sure. You're, you're, you're a psychologist. Yeah. Psychologist. That's quite a part-time job. Yeah. It's actually a great part-time <laughs> yeah. job. You know, I work 15, 18 hours a week uh, seeing patients. But I, I, usually people assume that when you become a violin maker, it's a hobby. Yeah. But it's the other way around for me. I was the violin yeah. maker first wow. and then went to, in the direction of psychology. And I, it was great because it allows me to, you know, when you work with people, it's, especially in psychology, you're dealing with people's problems mm-hmm. and that can get weighty at times. So it's nice to have a way to just sort of dissipate all that, you know, and just focus on what you really want to do. And the wood is uh, unforgiving if you don't pay attention to it. So you right. have to be completely focused and, uh, you know, really attuned to what you're doing. And you were a furniture maker before that? Is that how yeah. you... Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I started, I worked my way through college uh, as a carpenter and then got my first job out of college uh, building furniture in Maine and then uh, took my violin to get fixed to an old guy named Ivy Mann. I was, I grew up as a fiddle player. I've always mm-hmm. been a fiddle player. And uh, he was an old Mainer. And uh, when I went back to get my uh, violin, uh, I paid him and I started to leave. And uh, he said, well, when are you coming back? And I said, what do you mean, when am I coming back? And he goes, well, I put this wood out here thinking that maybe you'd want to come and train with me. Hmm. I said, oh, you're going to teach me? And he goes, yeah, that's the idea. And I was young and foolish enough to agree to do it. Uh, I think I was 22 years old. Okay, Uh, just a kid? Just a kid. And... uh, I started training with him and eventually worked with him for three years and then left and went and studied with two uh, people who were trained in Europe at the school in uh, Mittenwald, Germany. So you went to Germany? Uh, no, they came here. Oh, they, they came here. Yeah, they came here. And uh, one was from Holland and one, one was American. And okay. Was we, that in Philadelphia? Didn't you go down to? Eventually I went yeah. to Philadelphia, yeah. Michael Weller was the guy from Holland who had, he was the head of the Menick shop in Philadelphia, which at the time was the world's largest shop who did all the work for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Then he went off and o- opened up his own shop, and he invited me to be part of that. And so he and I worked together. So when you started with, is it Ivy Man? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting path. So in a sense, you create your own path in this field, but he's a mentor. Take me through that. Does he know when you've learned the skills need to be further honed? Yeah. And you need like more uh, some kind of different program or other people to, to mentor you. Sure, yeah. It's, you know what's interesting is it's very different than American education, uh, European education. The violin is a European instrument. So it's, a, it's what they call a guild system. So you basically do your four years of apprenticeship, which is, you know, you learn from one individual. And then you do your journeyman work, which means that you go out and you find another place to work where you get exposed. Really, the idea is to get exposed to old instruments. And being at that shop it was fantastic because we saw all the great violins from the Philadelphia Orchestra come in, Guarnerius, Stradivariuses, and we'd take them apart, completely apart. And we'd measure them and we'd tap on them and we'd figure out what, what made them really sound beautiful. And, uh, you know, you do that enough times and you begin to accumulate, uh, you know, a sort of an intuitive knowledge of what really makes a beautiful sound. So in a sense, you're, you're, you're getting mentorship from the people that are teaching you how to do this as an apprentice, obviously. But you're also learning from all the violins. You're, yes. lear- you're learning sort of your own signature violin through, what, hundreds of other violins? Yeah. I mean, it's complicated in that way. I, I, really, I can understand why you're asking that question because you have to know it's a historic instrument. You know, they say that there's two things in the world that have, not, have completed the revolution. One of them is the redwood tree, and the other is the violin, that they haven't been able to improve it in hundreds of years. So you're up against that. So there's a historic sense of it. No pressure. No pressure. You can't do it. You can't deviate from the norm too far because otherwise it's not accepted. Yeah, you don't hear about any Darwinian uh, literature on uh, on violins. No. I mean, people have tried, believe me, (laughs) but it it doesn't work. So... Uh, so you're you're against that, and and then the other piece of it is the creative part, your own individual creativity. 
you know, I, I think w the turning point for me came when I was in Philadelphia working with Michael Weller. And every time I'd finish a new violin, he would play it. And he'd, he'd uh, see what it sounded like, and he'd, he'd comment on it to me. And um, at one point, uh, probably maybe my fifth or sixth instrument I made in the shop, he turned to me and he said, you know, I can tell you made it. It sounds like you. Wow. And that's the turning point. Like, that's like, you know, it's not that I want to sound like Stradivarius. You really want to sound like yourself completely. But you have to do it in the context of this historic sense of what a, what a violin sounds like and the, what really makes a, a great sound. It's interesting when you said that the turning point. You, I read this great story about you that I'd like you to tell about a, a gentleman, Anton Smith. Yes. About what he asked you to do. Oh. This is a great story. I don't know if I could actually do it myself, but but you did it, and uh, I wonder if you could tell that story. Yeah, you know. sure. So part of the training is, you know, so you're you're up against, you know, these this beautiful tradition of, the, of historic instruments, right? So you're constantly measured. All your instruments are measured against that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, to become a violin maker, it takes incredible focus and dedication. And so when I was working with Anton, he was the other person who was trained in Mittenwald, Germany. I had probably made, I don't know, maybe four or five instruments with him, and uh, at some point, um, I had just finished a violin, and I was, you know, really proud of it. It was like, I think it was better than the last one. I was really felt like it was a reflection of the best that I could do. And uh, so, you know, the next uh, night, I was sitting there uh, in the, I had a little shop. Uh, I lived in the place right next to Anton. And uh, there was a knock on the door, and it was Anton. It was dark out. And there was a bonfire burning out in the yard. I said, wow, that's interesting. And Anton had a bottle of wine and two glasses with him. So he came in. I said, oh, great, Anton, come on in. <laughs> so we sat around, and we had a glass of wine. And then he said, well, you know, I want to tell you a story. He said, when I was training in Mittenwald, my teacher made me do this, what I'm about to ask you to do. And I want you to understand that there's a, there's a reason for this. And he said, I, I'm going to ask you to take your last violin, and I want you to throw it in the bonfire out there and burn it. And I go, what? You want me to burn the violin I just finished? And he goes, yes. He says, because what you don't understand is that you want to be able to be in your shop, you know, 15 years after you made a violin and somebody walks in with this instrument, you open the case and you want to say, my God, who made that beautiful violin? You don't want to say, oh, my God, who made that piece of crap? Right. <laughs> right? And he says, you can't tell yet. And so in order to help you learn how to let go of instruments huh. and how to let go of something that really isn't at the professional level that you need to be, we're going to go burn the violin. Wow. And so I had another glass of wine and off we went. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how long did it take you to finally work it up to finally throw it under that fire? Oh, you know what? I was ready. I, I trusted Anton. He was a really great teacher, yeah, sure. an incredibly knowledgeable person. And, you know, at that point. Wow. It's giving me chills. Like, that's like a scene from a, a movie. I or know, something. it really you know, is. You don't, yeah. you don't hear stories like that very no, often. No, you don't. No. How'd that feel? I mean, do you remember the feeling of uh, actually, like, or seeing it burn? And Yeah, I, re I remember. Um, being kind of, I was crushed initially by it. You know, I can't imagine why he's making me do this. But, you know, looking back at it, I totally understand it. It's like you really do wow. have to let go. And then it's interest, interesting, like, so I've been lucky enough to only work by commission. So ever since I left Philadelphia and came up here, I've always had commissions. So I'm lucky in that way. Yeah. Which means I get to build a violin for somebody. They talk to me about the sound that they want and, uh, you know, what goes into a violin. And, and I help sort of translate the sound that they hear into the wood. But what happens is, is when you do that is you get very attached to the work. You know, they are like children. But like a par any parent knows, at some point you have to let go of your kids. you got to mm -hmm. let them go into the world. Sure. And so it's not unlike that where you, there's a letting go process where you huh. just have to uh, trust that they're, you know, going to a good home and things are going to work out. When you mentioned um, 
talking to people about their story and what may go into their own voice yeah. or their own violin. You mentioned going into psychology. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's your, you know, that's that's your other half in a sense. It doesn't really, even though they're they're disparate professions. It seems as if you've had a a way of listening to others talk about themselves or their music yeah. and how they feel about what their violin would sound like. Yeah. And I'm just sort of wondering about your thoughts on how you how that sort of as a psychologist yeah. looking sort of back on yes. that and and forward in a sense. Yeah. Can I just say that's a really beautiful question? I, I love that question. Oh, don't yeah. don't say that too loud. Okay. It'll go right to his head. No, I do. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Let me see how I'm going to answer it, though. I guess my thought would be that the, the connection is is really, like you're suggesting, that you learn how to listen. But you don't listen to just the surface part of the wood. You know, you, you What you really learn how to do is to take out, the, you know, as, as my friend Armin Barnett used to joke, he says, it's easy to make a violin. You just take away everything that doesn't look like a violin. And maybe there's something similar in psychology in that they're inside of people's struggles. There's always, you know, a, a better person in there, somebody who could emerge and really uh, shine in, in the way that uh, we, maybe we could say sing, you know, in the sense of being able to really express themselves in more direct ways than the, the problems that they're carrying have, have allowed them to. And in that sense, sure. yeah, there's a freeing up of sort of what's innate and what's in a person or in the wood that really showcases what you can do as a, as a, as a um, it overlaps between a psychologist and a, and a violin maker. I have to say I was gifted at in, in the violin world because I worked with really great teachers. You know, they really knew what they were doing. They, they had worked with incredibly beautiful violins and they really understood what went into a sound and they helped me sort of be able to translate that. So if someone comes to my shop uh, I have a lot of old wood that I've gathered over the years. We tap on the wood, and I can tell, I can sort of help a person translate what they hear in in their own mind in terms of the sound they want to create with their instrument and translate that into the wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not translate it into the wood, but let's say translate it out of the wood, I guess. Right. And, and to differentiate yeah. what kind of wood is going to give you different mm. kinds of sound. And that's, uh, you know, that's years of practice, and it's I'm a very intuitive person, and in the same way that the, there's a link between the huh. two the two fields, Um Really, just uh, focused on the capacity to really intuitively know. Huh? Yeah, because we're going to obviously talk about child's play, and we, we're excited to, to listen to it and play it on the podcast. And I want to hear, you know, we want to hear more more about the project. Yeah. But that sort of, I think that concept dovetails into that in a sense because I know that sort of reading that the the Harvard Magazine article, yeah. there's a piece of every person in the violin, yeah. but there's a piece of you in every violin. Yes. And so there's. You know, in in that twenty or thirty people, whoever playing on stage, I, you know, that's that's something that is very unique, obviously. Yeah, so. I mean, well, okay, let, let's let's let me uh, sort of take that because I, I think you're really making a, an important link there. Because first of all, the, the origin of the band is that working in Philadelphia, I being a fiddle player, I sold all my early violins to fiddle players, but I was working for classical musicians. And then uh, one day I got a phone call in the shop, and it was a person from the Smithsonian Institution saying that we'd like you to come down and play a concert here for us. And I said, great, I'd be thrilled to do that. And they said, by the way, the name of the band is Child's Play. And I said, Child's Play? So I said, yeah, everyone on stage is going to be playing one of your instruments. (laughs) And so one of the things I love about that is that I was actually invited to be in the band. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we had such an incredible time playing together. And, uh, you know, they say that the violin, it's like a family that sings together. There's a familial quality to the instruments. 
And so the voices of the instruments all blend together. Over the years, I think we've really grown both. It's more, it's a very collaborative experience. It's not top down. It's very, uh, you know, very uh, horizontal, we'd say, you know, yeah. it's just very collaborative. It really focuses on uh, trying to create something new together, which is th- what's emerged as the sound of child's play, which has been going for 30 years now. Well, it's such a crazy story. It's like me walk. It's like me going to into town and and someone saying, "Yeah, you know, I heard this great band. It's called the Chuck Cloud Guitarists." Yeah, and you know what? You should be in it too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, how insane is that? That they started a band, like uh, not a band, but they started an ensemble of yeah. these phenomenal musicians. Yeah, and they're using all of your instruments. I mean, I don't know. Did, did they plan it this way? They kind of snuck up on you and said, look, we got this band together. Now you should do it. Or, or it's like, oh, yeah, you're the guy who did it. You should join. You should play with us, too. I mean, it's I, and you'd never heard of it before. You'd never heard of Charles. It never existed. That was the birth of it. No, that, that was the birth of it. They that, had was actually, it. Oh. that was the moment. And it was a little bit before uh, Facebook. No, uh, yes. Just yeah. a few years. Yeah. I think it's Facebook. such a great I think it's such a great and unique story that they started a band with your name in, you know, in, in there, all using your instruments. I can't imagine. I don't know of any other uh, ensemble that uses only one violin maker or whatever guitar maker. Are there other examples that you know of throughout the world? I don't think so. I mean, I think there are, there might be occasionally uh, a one-off kind of one evening performance of somebody's instruments, but, uh, there's never been a professional man. You know, we've been touring the, the U S and Europe for 30 years. So Mm. it's like, we've really, really created, uh, you know, a, a sound. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's really a tricky thing, you know, you have to be at the center of it, but you have to be careful. Um, you know, it, it can't be too much focused on me, really. It has to be, it's really about the players and it, it's about generating something bigger than yourself. Sure. And that's, that's why it's beautiful. I think that's why it lives. It's, you know, it's not controlled by one person. It's, it's its own entity. You know, it's interesting because the video that I've seen of the players and it is amazing. I know you have a couple, you have a couple of DVDs out. And I've been able to see a little bit of them. And it's just the production value, the, the set, the energy you see on stage. And you know, it's not just violins. You have, you have the guitar in there. You have a banjo. You have flute players. And, and you cellos. S- bass, cellos. Singers. Harp. Singers. And dancers. Set too. dancers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really full-blown production, and it's, and it's fantastic. Yeah. What I think is really beautiful about it is that uh, everybody in the band is a star in their own right. You know, whether they're all Ireland fiddle champion yeah. or a Boston symphony player or, right. you know, you name it. They, they're all out there touring and playing professionally. But they love to come together because it really stretches them musically. Like they're going to be slightly out of their comfort zone in terms of the tradition that they're, they're working from. Uh, they're learning. It's creative. They're listening in new ways. And they get to create something absolutely brand new all together. And that's the reason people come back year after mm. year because... Uh, artistically, it's really, really exciting, and it's, it's not the same old, same old anymore. Right. I, ne- I remember what I was going to say. So I, the, in any of the videos that I saw, you were never the the soloist. Yes. You always, you, I think you've, you've introduced a few people, and you're just there in the back. I mean, is that kind of what you, is that kind of your role there, or do you ever step in front and you ever do your a solo part, and I just haven't seen it, or are you just kind of... You know, stepping back and just letting them do what they're doing. You know, over the years, I've had moments where yeah. I've, I've I've been featured, but um, to me, I'm featured all the time because I'm as the maker of the violins. Like, of course, this is my collective voice in some yeah. way, you could say. And so, I don't feel the need to do that. I'd rather actually let other people take their their uh, their opportunity to really stand out. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, you know, I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of the film. Um, just uh, last month, uh, the film was. Uh, 
is being accepted by PBS to be shown nationally for I the next that. two years. Oh, and, congratulations. Um, really That's excited great. about that because one of our hopes is to, for, I think once people hear the band, they get excited about the music and they come back year after year. But it's hard to explain it. I mean, as we joked one time, uh, we, we were playing in Sweden and somebody asked us about the name uh, Child's Play and it, it could, you couldn't translate it into, into Swedish. Hmm. But the, it, you know, it's not just a double entendre. It's, it's actually... You think that oh, all the people in the band are kids, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, not really. All of them are professional musicians. And, uh, you know, that there's something about the creative process that is what I love about it and what all the musicians love about it. And I think it's a really positive example of what you can do when you create a lot of people uh, sort of with a common purpose to create something new. And yeah. that's what I love about it. And I think people really respond to that. Well, well tell me about the... Uh so you have different people with different genres playing the violin. Yeah. You have classical, you have uh, you know traditional Irish music and everything in between. In Child's Play, how do you select the songs and what's the makeup of of the musicians? Is it 20 or so? Or? Yeah, it's right around 20, 21. Um, used to be more, but we found that 20 or 21 is, is kind of the ideal size on the stage. So it's usually about 12 to 13 violins, mm-hmm. and then the rest are different uh, instrumentalists mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. sort of complement each other. And they bring their own style into it? Yeah, or? they bring yeah. their own style. What happens is, like, so we start thinking ahead every year before we tour what kind of music we're going to do. Um, this year we have Karen Casey, who's going to be singing with us, who's absolutely phenomenal singer from Ireland. She was in the band Solas for a long time mm-hmm. and has done some great stuff on her own, obviously. So Karen's going to be the singing in the band. And so it's going to be a real Irish focus to this year's show. Mm-hmm. Karen Jordan and uh, Kevin Doyle are step dancing. They're both phenomenal Irish step dancers. Great what they call the Chano style, which is a more traditional style. It's not just old music. It's not like music just from the old country. It's actually a very alive kind of tradition where people in the band are writing music. Yeah, I was going to ask that next. Yeah. They do yeah. it. Yeah, everybody yeah. writes music in the oh, band. Great. Well, not everyone, but you know, a, a great number of people do. And uh, you know, a lot of it has a Celtic feel to it, but that can range from a couple of people are uh, Scottish na- national fiddle champions, Cape Breton musicians, uh, one of the people's from Newfoundland. Um, you know, so there's a real range of musical styles, but th- at the heart of it is, is Celtic music, hmm. and uh, and so this year's show is really going to sort of showcase the Celtic roots, but in a very contemporary way. Didn't I see also that someone had added their own verse to an existing song? Yes, right, Lissa Schneckenberg. Yeah, L- Lissa, who's I mentioned to you before that we had Flynn Cohen on earlier, and right. he is in Low Lily yeah. with Lissa, yeah. and they're excellent. They are. I mean, she's a, a beautiful singer. Yes. And, and, yeah, great and, folk stuff. And she added her own verse to her an existing Yeah, she did. Song. Like I say, it's a living tradition. Yeah, so she I think felt, that's great. Yeah, and I think that's really important to keep it going and keep it, you know, make it contemporary so everyone can relate to it, not just somebody from, you know, 300 years ago. Right. The submarines are stationed and the allies are aligned. The olive trees were stolen from the banks of Palestine. Look it over from the inside, take a breath, relax the mind. And the things that we're seeking we will find. In the city folks are banging pots and spoons from balconies. 
Cause the Pennsylvania police are bewildered and diseased But the journalist on death row is refusing to resign And the power and the glory will be mine adding singing to the group? That's an excellent question, too. So initially, we were really focused on the instrumental part. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was, it's a story that goes back to my sister, um, who unfortunately had gotten ill and was in the process of dying. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, she and I listened to this one song together over and over again, which we just loved. And I realized that, you know, I wanted to do the song in her, in her memory, in her mm -hmm. honor. So I asked uh, Aoife O'Donovan, who's a good friend of mine, if she'd sing it. It's called Dante's Prayer. Uh, it's on our Heaven and Earth CD. It was so great. I mean, not only is, was she a beautiful singer, but to hear the violin and the voice kind of come together, uh, you know, it's like they say, the violin and the voice, the, the violin is the most like the human voice of all the musical instruments. Mm -hmm. So to hear it, uh, hear a soulful musical singer like Aoife, and then combined with the violins, it just sort of wow. brought together something really magical. And that we realized that, why aren't we doing this all the time? So... Uh, Aoife sang with us for a number of years until she went off on her great solo career, which she's w doing so well with. Mm. And then Lissa uh, sang with us for a couple of years. And it just felt like a, it's a new era now. So we're going to um, invite Karen to play with us. And, uh, you know, she's going to play with us for a few years. We're going to record a new album next year and mm -hmm. just sort of see where that goes. Do you find that anyone sings while they're playing the violin? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's possible, obviously. Yes. But you don't really hear of that. No. Do people do that in child's play? Or, not or? really. Not very often. Tim O'Brien was the first person I ever heard do that. Actually, what Tim did, he would play a melody line and he'd sing a harmony line. Which yeah. I, I have no idea how a person's mind could actually yeah, hold like, those two things together. It's like rubbing your belly and hitting yeah. your head yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, can we get a picture of that, Michelle? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I, what some of your violinists do dance, though. They dance, not while they're playing, obviously, but yeah. they, I saw this this one woman. I don't know. Sheila, sure that was yeah. Sheila Falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a fantastic yeah. dancer, and uh, her husband, her husband's mom was a famous uh, Irish step dance teacher mm. in the Boston area for many years, but... She does that, and also uh, Steve Hickman, who does Hambone, which is another thing that's part of our show. Oh, yeah. What's uh, that? Hambone is body percussion. Oh. Where you, you do body beats and you rhythm, rhythms off your body, and, and you kind of mix it. It's very much like dancing, but with Interesting. You know, with do you wear? Do they wear anything to hit the, no, the it's percussion? No, it's, it's not it's like all natural. or anything like that. Yeah. It's not like that, but it's, yeah. it's just natural. And Steve is the premier person doing it, but he also step dances as well. 
And so, yeah, everyone has different talents in the band, and you every year you kind of feature different parts of it. What about the bonding that occurs with people, or, or what type of relationships develop in child's play? Well, you know, I think if, if you anyone who, who's involved in the creative process would appreciate this when you're with a group of people. There is something about where you're taking risks with each other, and you're not doing what you usually do. You're kind of going out on a limb and you're trying out new things in the presence of other people. There's like, it's a little vulnerable. There's a little bit of way in which you don't know how it's going to come out. And I think that's one of the really central bonding elements of it, Hmm. that everyone is really trying out new things and they're supporting each other, really supporting each other and appreciating each other. And then somebody will play some amazing line or something, they'll come up with this great idea and everyone will support them. I'm saying this in the context that everyone in the band is actually the leader of their own band. They're usually the one who's in charge. Right, in their separate lives. In their separate lives outside of Child's Play. So here they are stepping back and, uh, you know, sort of allowing something new to happen. And it just creates the bonding part, which is that... Yeah, they're uh, impressed yeah. and just moved by everyone doing things. Because I have to say, I mean, what is what is really fascinating, Chuck was talking about the whole concept of you've created, let's get back to the nidus of why this came to be, yeah. because you've created these instruments. Mm-hmm. And so I could see that you can have a unique group of people that bond and have take risks and have these, you know, they have their own separate lives, they come into one band every year. But not only that, it's predicated by the sound that is part of them, but part of you. Yeah. And part of, I don't know, that to me is this, whether it's unconscious or it's there and they, they feel something different, I don't well, know. Well, it, it's, it's emotional, right? I mean, there's a, they're, they're moved in that way. And that's one of the things about the, our music, of course, that we hope we convey that and we move other people with it. If you get to see the film in its entirety, you know, one of the things I tell, I tell a story in the film uh, about my own childhood, which is really part of, I think, important part of the sound, which is that when I was a, a young a young boy, early, in my early years, I was in a series of foster homes, mm-hmm. five different foster homes. You know, and like anybody, I, I, I had to make sense of that. You know, I was adopted and, and sort of found my way into the world and, and mm-hmm. re- relatively intact. As the years went by, you know, I, I struggled with the violin making in the sense that, you know, like I said, I'm working on my own. I'm not sure, am I good enough to do it? Things like that. And I wasn't sure if I was going to keep going with it. You know, I sort of came to that crossroad. And I had a dream. Literally, I was about to make the decision about whether I was going to stop making or not. Uh, where in the dream, I'm at a border country, like Switzerland, and I'm trying to get into the country. And the guard says, well, you can't come in. You have to come into the guardhouse with me. And so he walks me back through the customs house. And as he's walking me back, eventually we're into the center of the house where there's no light. And we go into this room, which is completely black, except for a table. And on the table is a violin. And he motions to me to pick it up. So I pick it up, and I turn it over, and inlaid into the back of the violin is an image of a small boy crying. Mm. At that moment, it was like a revelation. This is why I'm making violins. It's to somehow take an experience that was incredibly disorienting and, and obviously profoundly affected you know, who I am and, and wow. my experience. And I found somehow, through these series of circumstance, found a way to, to express that you know, which is it's not something you could really say in language. I mean, maybe you can, but it comes out so much better through music and through the idea of making a violin with my hands and then be able to put that violin into the hands of a really wonderful musician who can then carry that voice forward into the world. Mm. And so that's I think beautiful that's story. part of it. It's, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. It's an amazing story. That's, wow. a, it's, that's the roots of the band in many ways. And that was when you were in your 
thirties? Is that when you started making? I started making violins when I was in my early twenties, twenty two. But right. it was it was in my early thirties when I came to that crossroads. Right, right. I'd done okay. my nine years of, you know, hard apprenticeship and journeyman's work, and sure. was I opening up my own shop? And I just wasn't sure about the direction. You know, anyone who's tried to start something new understands that kind of uh, concern. When did you start playing the the violin? Uh, I started when I was a teenager. So I, you were you already adopted? You were living in Maine at the time. Uh, yeah, I was living in upstate New York. Upstate actually. New York. Yeah. Okay. But I played I played in a band. I played guitar in a band, uh-huh. in a fiddle band. And I you know I just grown up listening to fiddle music. One day the the fiddle player was from Ireland and went back home because his grandfather died, and he came back and his grandfather was a very good fiddle player, and he said, "Listen, I have a really nice violin here. I don't really have a use for my grandfather's violin. You take it." And I said, okay, I'll take it, but you got to show me how to play it. And so he started giving me lessons. Hmm. Yeah, I started playing, and it was one of those things. I got into it so much, I didn't finish my uh, last year of college right away because I was playing music so much time, I didn't finish any of my courses. (laughs) (laughs) I just got so into fiddle playing. That's great. What a great excuse. It's usually drugs or other things. Usually drugs or whatever, but no, for (laughs) me, it it was the fiddle. The fiddle music, and finally, I you know I had to go back and and take you know some extra time. Yeah, right? yeah. But did finish. So the you know the story about you taking your violin child and throwing it onto the pyre, the funeral yeah. pyre there. Yeah. When you first saw all those people who who were part of Child's Play when you first joined them, yeah. Did you recognize all your children? Could you see? Did you recognize instruments when you saw them again for yeah. the first time? Oh yeah. I mean, you know what I could remember? I can remember the sound of every instrument. And I remember the looks, pretty much the looks of every instrument. Huh. I, you know, you forget a few details as the years go on. But in fact, it, we had an interesting time where we, after a concert, we had a party and everyone passed the violin around, hmm. their violin around. So everybody was playing each other's violins. Oh, neat, neat. And every time I'd get one, I'd play it and I'd just, yeah, okay, I remember that. And oh I'd pass my it gosh, on. that's crazy. And we just having a great time with that. So we have this beautiful, gorgeous violin in front of us. I wish you could all, well, actually, we'll be able to see it with with Michelle's pictures. Yes. This, you mentioned that you made this for you. Yeah, yeah. I made it. I turned 50 14 years ago. Uh-huh. And I realized at that point that I didn't own one of my own violins. Being a violin maker, as a friend of mine one time joked, you live like a, a snake because you get a big meal every once in a while and you have to digest it really slowly. Huh. And so the money, the cash flow of a violin business is, uh, you know, ebbs and flows, should we mm-hmm. say. So, of course, I didn't have extra money around, so I, didn't, I couldn't afford my own violin, basically. But I realized when I was 50 that that would be really unfortunate not to be able to kind of hear under my own ear the aging of one of my own instruments. So I, you know, I found a piece of wood that was a little bit of a, had a little bit of a a mineral deposit in the back. So it wasn't one I was going to use to make for somebody else. But it's only a cosmetic thing. It's not a a sound issue. Mm -hmm. And so I made the violin that way. And uh, it's been great. Yeah, I mean, I really love... Uh, hearing it now and um, love the sound of it. Uh, it's really part of me. Is this the only one you play? Do you have like several of them that you play? Like a guitarist has like several guitars? No, possibly? I only play one. You only yeah. play one? So do I. I only play yep. one guitar too. Yeah, so. I think it's, it's, it becomes your friend, right? It does. I, I've never, I've kept every acoustic guitar I've ever had, I've kept. Yeah. I mean, I could never throw it onto the fire. I mean, yeah. I didn't build it myself, but certainly I don't, I could never, could never sell it. My electrics I could sell, I wasn't so attached to them. Yeah. My acoustic guitars, for some reason, I just feel Something about that a little word, more attached right? to it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So back to, you know, the group and how you all play together and how everyone uses it as, as, as you know, they're listening to each other. They're coming from their mm-hmm. own bands or their own, 
you know, ensembles or they're solo gigs, and they're coming together as a group and learning these songs together. I, I thought I read that when you rehearse, I don't know if it's 100 percent or maybe it's most of the time you rehearse online. Is that the case? Y- yeah. Well, what we do is, you know, it takes a while for an idea to come into fruition. So, you know, I su- I might suggest to someone, say, I might say to Keith Murphy, uh, I say, you know, Keith, why don't you write something for this year's show and He'll sort of so he'll send me some ideas. He'll write some pieces. He'll send them to me. Um, then I'll send them back. And then I say, okay, well, let me tell me what you think of this. And he, he sort of creates an arrangement of sorts. He'll send that to me, and then I'll put it out to the band. Uh, we have, you know have an area on our website where we put out different music on it for each other. And then when we all get together to actually rehearse in person, some of the ideas have developed fairly. Uh, far far along but in the rehearsal process itself everybody is amendable to different new ideas new input until by the end of the rehearsal time it's sort of come together as a complete piece mm. so it's organic in that sense mm-hmm. yeah so and, and i really love that part of the process and and everybody hanukkah castle writes such beautiful music you know katie mcnally keith murphy shannon heaton oh. sam amadon i mean there's just some absolutely stunning musicians and they're writing such great pieces sheila falls and do they write in their other day jobs or their yeah. other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they do. They're they're all professional. That's what they do for a living. And right. writing is part of that. Because uh, I know some professionals will will not. I mean, they'll be in the, let's say in, the, in an orchestra and they'll they won't write. And this may be an opportunity for them. But that's interesting that, that they sort of bring their own child's play repertoire too. Yeah, and I think want. the band because of the the artistic level of you know the high level of musicianship. They can write pieces for the band, knowing that you can do a three-part harmony and and sort of mm. everyone can play it, or some really complex rhythm to a piece that you know is not going to stump the band, and they'll be able to kind of fold it in. So they might write something a little more complicated or a little more interesting. I wondered if you could give us sort of like a two-minute or a three-minute primer on uh, making a violin. Is there a process that you can take us through? Well, it's very much like sculpture, in that you you learn how to use shadows. You learn how to see like an artist, and you see high and low points. And you learn to see certain shapes, which to someone who's not a violin maker wouldn't make any sense at all. But you, know, you learn to see certain shapes. And part of that comes from looking at old violins, and you see the different types of shadows off of old instruments. And then you, you tap on instruments, you tap on wood, and then you can hear different sounds, and you flex the wood. And so you learn that you, you take wood away because you're trying to free up the sound, but if you take too much wood away, it's going to be too thin. You know, it won't vibrate in the way that you want it to, to sustain the sound. Uh, as Anton used to say, it has to sound like a bell. It just keeps ringing. And so if you take too much wood away, then it's, it's not going to sustain itself. And so you learn how to do that, and you learn how to see shapes, like in terms of the scroll and the F-holes, you know, the old-fashioned um, F-hole. Uh-huh. And then you learn how to make varnish, and the varnish, you know, everything... I mean, I learned how to make all my own tools, my knives, my planes, everything. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, really? you do everything. Because, like I say, it was, I was trained by in the old European method. Sure. You know, one of the nice things about contemporary violin making as compared to violin making really, say, 30 years ago and before, is that people of my generation, they're more open to each other in terms of sharing ideas, whereas more traditionally based violin makers have been very uh, secretive and very mm. closed in terms of sharing information. Mm. Mm. Not that everybody, I'm not saying that all violin makers are completely open, but what I am saying is I have three friends in particular who we just talk about violin making. We share all our ideas together. We share varnish recipes. We make varnish together. Huh. Whereas before it was it was a more of a closed system. And, huh. um, I think there's so many great violin makers living today 
because of that, you know, that because there's more information and there's more, and I'm not talking about technical information. I'm talking about the actual craft of how to do something. Yeah, and if people go to our, uh, the Child's Play website, was childsplay.org, uh, there are some pictures of me making some instruments. I saw there. those, yeah. And, and there are also uh, a picture of, of, of one of my violins uh, up close, you know, scrolls and F holes, and you get to see the, the wood burning I, I put on my instrument. Because in the old days, people used to uh, take the labels out and they put in a fake label. Oh, really? And, you know, people would show up, hey, I have the Stradivarius. It's worth a million dollars, and it turns out. Gotta look out for those ch- for those Bob Child's uh, ripoffs. Not gonna happen, because I have these two little putti that are, are burned into the oh, wood. Oh, very good. And so, uh, you know, so basically you do a, some kind of a play on your name, which is right. a, a child. What's booty? It's, it? a, it's a, chi- a cherub oh. angel oh. playing the violin. Oh, you see them nice. in a lot of paintings. Do you teach violin making? No, you, I'm better off just working and, and doing the psychology and the violin making the way I have it set up. Well, you know, I wanted to go back to that just for a second because you mentioned that you have an office that, that they're connected in yes. a sense. Mm-hmm. Do you ever physically connect the concepts of violin and psychology? I mean, will, you, will you ever bring a violin into a... Is there anybody, I guess, that's also intrigued by your violin side and mm-hmm. it comes up? I probably keep them pretty separate. Over the years, I've had a couple people ask to see one of my violins, and I have I have actually shown them. Hmm. Now you're about to That's start great. touring again, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Now, do you? Child's Man has been around for you said 30 years. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, 30. So years. have you been? Have you done something every year, or is it kind of do you see when people can get together? How how often do you actually do something where you're all together, you're touring, sure. or you're in the studio, or whatever? Like yeah, that? well, we've done uh, we've toured almost every year except for the last two years, which is what's interesting is that when we made this film, it turned out to be a lot more expensive than we all thought it was going to be, and to make it at the level that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Which now looking back today, now that it's going to be on PBS and it's going to be shown nationwide wide, it makes me feel a lot better about that investment. We need to take a little time off to just sort of recharge and, and refill the coffers. It's one evening, right? It's yeah. Not, the film is just one evening. It's, just it's, one a, evening. it's a live concert with interviews from the band. Yeah. And, um, yeah so Remind us, when is it again? So the, the, the concerts in the Boston area are at Somerville Theater on uh, Sunday, November 20th. And there's two shows. One is at three o'clock and one's at 7.30. And we're going to play on the Cape Thursday, the 17th of November in Harwich. And then we're going to go down to New York City on the 18th, play at the Symphony Space down there, which is a really lovely venue. And then up to Portland, Maine, do a show there, and then come come back here. So, yeah, it's going to be a very exciting uh, week of touring and just hanging out together and playing music and, and really kind of generating some new some new material, too. We're really looking forward to that. Now, how many violins have you made? I've made 150. Okay. A little bit more, probably 150. The great majority of the violins I made are, are belong to classical musicians. Child's play at the most is 15 fiddle players. It's usually a little bit less, 13, 14. And it's a consistently the same people over and over again. Right. That's important if you're touring, that you want to be able to reproduce the sound yeah. that yeah. You, people are hearing on CDs. Most of them are fiddle players that right. are in child's play. And you know, that's something we love. Actually, that reminds me of another thing I want to tell your listeners is that uh, if there are any aspiring fiddle players there... Um, years ago, we decided to um, put free fiddle lessons on the website. And so uh, I asked different members of the band to actually create a fiddle lesson for somebody who's learning violin. So there, there are lessons on, on our website. It's video and lessons? Video lessons. Oh, excellent. And, and uh, some of them, I mean, uh, like the one that Sheila Falls did has, I think, over 200,000, been, has been downloaded over 200,000 times. Good for them. That's great. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, the intention is it's giving back, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it's free. There's no charge to it. People can download it and they can learn and get excited about the fiddle, which is really 
the intention of the whole thing. Now, I had a question, Bob. If if we were to do a plot, like put thumbtacks yeah. on the world, where would some of the most interesting violins live? There's a bunch of them in Sweden. Mm. Uh, there's some really f- incredible Swedish fiddle players uh, who have actually had over twice so far to come over and tour with the band. Oh, great. Um, there's six Swedish fiddle players that are, are playing on my instruments. And so that's probably the most exciting. And then, you know, people in Ireland, there's some people. There's a person sure. from Ireland, Amanda Cavanaugh, who's coming over for this tour. What uh, about throughout the U.S.? All Is it over the United, in- Western United States, uh, California, Seattle, middle of the United States, uh, St. Louis, all over the country, yeah. Florida, really, um, really all over the country, mm. which is, you know, it's, it's funny in that I've, I've never had to advertise a voicemail to sort of do it word of mouth. So in that sense, people come come to me from all over the the uh, all over the country. Well, you know, we've only, we've been talking for almost an hour before. So before we let you go, I did want to ask one last question. So you're prepping for this for this tour. Yeah. Now, is there something that you want to do with Child's Play that you are either planning to do or that you just haven't talked about yet? Is there some is there some real good project that you that you think that would be just really great to do? Yeah, there is actually. Funny you should ask. We're gonna one of the people in Child's Play, Molly Goller, was the principal dancer for Palabolas for a number of years. Okay, if you know that modern dance group in New York City. And she started to choreograph some music to the music of Child's Play. It's not ready for prime time yet. In other yeah. words, we're still still working on it. But I think by next year, we're going to have enough pieces that we're going to premiere uh, probably five or six pieces. They're going to basically feature Molly dancing in the style of Palabolas, which is her own style at this point, to the music of Child's Play. So it'll be kind of the, as I'm trying to allude to, it's combining the kind of the traditional with the contemporary sure. and creating something brand new. It's going to be to fiddle music, and it'll be uh, it'll be totally cool. That's huh. neat. And That's when does great. when does the PBS special air? It's starting uh, in, November. in November. So I'm not sure when this podcast will will uh, air, but we'll get, um, it'll all be out before November. Great. So, yeah. yeah. So it'll, it'll be happening all over all over the country, and uh, um, That's exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, like I say, to me. It's about getting this, introducing the people to the band because no one's ever heard of the band because you know we don't get played on the radio that much. It's not a pop sound, but once they they hear the band or they see the band, uh, and like I say, you can go to childsplay.org and, and see video clips from mm-hmm. from uh, years of performance. Uh, then they really understand what it's about, mm. and then they get mm. excited about it. And then you know we, we they can sign our mailing list, and then they'll they can follow us when we, we go on tour. Well, absolutely. You know, we'll, we'll obviously put links to your site and to the videos and, yeah. and uh, the audio on AboveTheBasement.com. But this is this has just been great. Thank you so much for, for joining us, yeah. talking about your passion. And break a leg this in November. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we're going to try definitely... to break both of them. Yeah. It should be yeah. fun. <laughs> can't, I can't wait to see it. Thank you. And thank you for having me on here. I really enjoyed talking, and uh, I feel like uh, we really covered some really good ground together. We did. Yeah. We, got, we got over an hour of good ground. Good. So that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, thank Thanks, you, Bob. Bob. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yep. I'll turn this off now. Okay, so those were some great stories. Bob is such a talent and a genuinely nice guy. Ron and I really enjoyed this conversation, and his work with Child's Play, as you can tell from the songs, is fantastic. To get more information about their live performance in November and their PBS special, and to also buy their CDs and DVDs, go to childsplay.org. Go to our own website at AboveTheBasement.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. (laughs) 
Above the Basement Boston Music and Conversation is recorded at beautiful Woods Hill Table Restaurant in West Concord, Massachusetts. Woods Hill Table owns a farm in Bath, New Hampshire, where they raise their own meat. They offer a full raw bar and fresh fish caught off the coast of Massachusetts, and they even harvest their own maple syrup and honey for use in the restaurant. Local farms supply all their vegetables and grains, and Chef Charlie Foster uses international cooking techniques to create fantastic, seasonally-focused cuisine. Go to woodshilltable.com for reservations, or call 978-369- 6300. 